This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. It's great to be with you this morning. And I hope you had a good weekend. Um, and I hope, uh, you know, we, we are certainly uh, thinking about all the people who were affected by the storms this weekend and, um, and uh, you know, hoping that we can all pitch in to help them recover. Um, and so, but today uh, on the show, we're excited to welcome my colleague, Professor Chris Green, back to the show. Chris is Professor of Law in the Janie L. Witten Chair in Law and Government, uh, an expert in constitutional law. And in fact, we're talking about the uh, the right to protest and the right to disrupt uh, free speech as well as free speech today. And, and Chris, you just returned. Good morning. And you just returned uh, about a week ago with a, a very successful new court team. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Good morning. Um, so, yeah, a week ago, we were the runner up at the uh, the Siegenthaler uh, Sutherland uh, National Moot Court competition at Catholic University. Uh, so we uh, we have a, uh, a tradition of putting up we for a while we had put up banners, big, huge banners uh, hanging over Atria. But now they're a, a little bit more uh, dignified uh, additions to the wall. But we uh, with the runner up, we get to uh, uh, get to put ourselves on the wall. So that's uh, that's quite exciting. But Moot Court, Moot Court. Uh, judging is uh, or, or coaching is is a lot of fun because you learn sort of a square inch of the law really 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 well every year. So we learned a whole lot about um, New York Times versus Sullivan and the uh, the rules that apply to defamation, which people in the media generally know really really well. Um, but we're uh, uh, looking forward to learning something uh, something new next year as well. Fantastic, and and so and that was really kind of re- related to the First Amendment, which is our topic for today, and. And uh, yeah, how did you become, tell us a little bit about your background, if you would, and how you became interested in constitutional law. Well, I guess I really, I became interested in constitutional law uh, before I was even in college. So I was uh, a policy, I was one of those policy debaters in high school. So these are the, uh, they're sort of the the slightly more, uh, slightly smoother uh, Lincoln Douglas type people who talk about values and kind of put together speeches that are uh, uh, well-rounded. Well, the policy debaters, these are the guys walking around with index cards with quotes on them, uh, uh, filled up. Uh, so uh, big, huge uh, piles of, of research. It's kind of competitive research um, uh, more than uh, oral advocacy sometimes. But I, one of my, one of our topics in high school had to do with um uh, it was uh, resolved that the federal government should adopt a, adopt a policy to decrease prison overcrowding in the United States. And when I discovered law reviews uh, and the fact that you had uh, these people, they always cite something for everything they say, uh, and there's, they're always considering every possible counterargument. I just love that area. And uh, when uh, you know, I just you know did more reading uh, at that point time in terms of uh, uh, issues of the day, and got really interested in in the con law things they were fussing over at the uh, at the Bork hearings, especially in 1987, and uh, just got really uh, fascinated with that. So I was uh, interested in yeah con law all through undergrad, and then uh, 
ended up going to, to grad school and, uh, and law school. And uh, here I am. I've uh, been here since uh, 2006. Right. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. We're glad to have you back on the show always. And, uh, and you know, this, this is especially timely to have you on the show today because uh, there's been national news about an event that took place on the campus of Stanford University, admittedly a, pr- a private school. Judge Kyle Duncan of the Fifth Circuit, uh, you knew Kyle, and he taught here, or I should say Judge Duncan, I have to be more deferential about it than that, but uh, he taught at the University of Mississippi before uh, he served on the Fifth Circuit, was invited to give a speech by the Federalist Society of the Law School there, and uh, and he was disrupted. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that and, and you know, how that implicates on our, our discussion today. Right. So, so, so. I, I, I also uh, uh, there's a danger of slipping into calling him calling Kyle instead of uh, Judge Duncan. But uh, so he has I mean, he was probably the I would say uh, in terms of his, the, the uh, how controversial uh, his views were uh, of, of the Trump uh, nominees, probably one of the most controversial nominees. So he. Uh, so he worked here for uh, several years as a professor, uh, then went to Louisiana, uh, where he was the appellate chief, a uh, position that later became the state solicitor general, had a number of controversial cases there, uh, but then went to the Beckett Fund uh, for Religious Liberty. And he was um, he represented Hobby Lobby uh, in the case they won at the Supreme Court. And that made him uh, that got him on a lot of people's lists. Um Another case that, uh, since he's become a judge, uh, has gotten a lot of flack, had to do with a litigant, so a transgender litigant, asking the court to refer to the litigant uh, with uh, the litigant's chosen pronouns. And uh, uh, Judge Duncan uh, uh, for the panel said, uh, we do not have to, as a court, uh, refer to the litigant uh, uh, that way. And that got a number of people uh, very, 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 very upset. So, uh, so since that, I mean, he's, he taught, gives talks pretty regularly, uh, to, uh, to lots of different places. Uh, but the group of, uh, uh, there were a group of people at Stanford who decided, uh, a few weeks before he was going to uh, come give his talk that we really want to, uh, disrupt, uh, well, it's not clear whether they decided to disrupt it, whether they uh, they decided uh, they wanted to make their views about uh, Judge Duncan uh, known. So they um, they had posters all around the law school for quite a bit. They put some posters uh, with pictures and names of the Federalist Society organizers saying shame on these people. Uh, the, the general theme was sort of Dracula. So like blood, blood dripping down from the letters kind of font. So. So a lot of a lot of stuff. And, you know, at this point, this is um, uh, this isn't disrupting anything. Uh, but then uh, they gathered at the uh, at the school and were in the hallways uh, greeting Judge Duncan as he's coming in uh, with some signs. Uh, and uh, a number of them were quite, quite vulgar uh, and not not what you usually like to certainly not what we like to see as uh, models of of advocacy, uh, uh, but uh, there was a number of vulgar uh, things. And then once he tried to give his his talks, he had a talk about relatively mundane things about the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court. Uh, And as soon as he began talking, people started shouting and disrupting, preventing the event, uh, preventing him from talking about what he wanted to talk about. There were several administrators, people from the Dean of Students, uh, the uh, DEI uh, dean uh, was there, uh, and after uh, uh, 
attempting to, to give his talk, uh, Judge Duncan asked, uh, can an administrator, so uh, I should you know, maybe back up, this is an extraordinarily complicated story. Before the, the talk had, had taken place, there was word that there was going to be some uh, protesting, and uh, Judge Duncan asked uh, a former judge, Mike McConnell, who is a, who's a professor at uh, Stanford Law School, uh, said, you know, are they going to, you know, make sure that they don't disrupt the speech? And Judge McConnell talked to the administration. They said, uh, yes, we will prevent uh, uh, students from disrupting uh, the speech. We'll abide by our, our policy on, on, on disruption, which says you're uh, allowed to protest. You can have signs. They can be vulgar signs, but you can't prevent somebody from having an event. Uh, uh, from speaking in the manner in which the, the speaker is uh, uh uh, has been invited to speak to the audience that wants to wants to hear. So he gets in. Uh, the event is disrupted in various ways. People shouting. Uh, then uh, the DEI dean gets up, and uh, so Judge Duncan says, "Can we get an administrator to uh, enforce the policy here?" Uh, the DEI dean uh, does not uh, clear out the room of, of protesters. In fact, uh, has a prepared remarks about. Uh, how upset some people are at things that uh, Judge Duncan had done. Um, and then I, I, I'm not clear whether this is going off script or or what, but uh, she actually says she's happy uh, that the uh, uh, the protest had taken place. I'm happy for for this uh, these things. Uh, there were some comments about, you know, you should ask yourself whether the juice is worth the squeeze, uh, which has, uh, if you read it, unsympathetically sounds like she's encouraging judge duncan to be intimidated uh by the the protest not to ever speak uh, at places like stanford um but uh but the statement that that she was happy about about the activities um dean martinez uh, last week her she cited that as particularly something that uh really uh in terms of giving encouragement to the disruption was uh, was not a good thing um, so the uh, the event. Uh, so after the Dean gives her uh, her, her little uh, spiel, then they have not discussion about the Fifth Circuit, but uh, they uh, uh, they have a bunch of questions from the audience uh, about things that they don't like about Judge Duncan. So it changes the topic of, of the conversation into uh, is is Judge Duncan an okay person? A number of the questions are extraordinarily vulgar, um, but. Uh, at any rate, the event, I think, ends a little early. Um, uh, the uh, dean that day uh, issues a, a statement of unhappiness uh, about how things went. Uh, the president of Stanford, the entire university, and the dean issue an apology uh, two days later. Um, and then last week, uh, the dean issued a 10-page statement explaining in great, great detail um, how uh, Stanford thinks about all these things. So, um, there's, there's lots more detail just about the factual, uh, description, but I'll, I'll give you, uh, I'll, I'll let that suffice for a, a kind of, uh, whirlwind tour. Ooh, and we'll, we'll use this as a, as a cliffhanger to find out, <laughs> uh, you know, what, uh, what this means for free speech and what is, what we could do, what we shouldn't do. We'll have that as a, as a cliffhanger. If you have a question about, what you can say and how you can say it about free speech and your right to protest, send us your questions by email. That's legalterms at mpbonline.org.
We are discussing free speech and our right to protest with our guest, Professor Chris Green. Now, we've done a couple other shows on free speech. I'll tell you about those podcasts next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast or find MPB Think Radio recordings on the mpbonline.org slash radio website. We have enjoyed having our guest, uh, Professor Green, on, and we are talking about freedom of speech. It's a pretty important right, and we've discussed it a couple of times, but in the distant past. So check out our podcast from March 12th of 2019 or April 25th from 2017. Today, we're talking about your freedom of speech with our guest, Professor Chris Green, professor of law and Jamie L. Witten chair in law and government at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Professor Green was just telling us about an incident at Stanford University where a judge came in to talk about X and the kids all the kids, the kids all protested and it it came into be a discussion about Oranges, well, so to speak. It was about uh, whether they had the right to protest and the ways that they did protest. One thing uh, to clarify, uh, Professor Green had talked about the DIE individual, and for folks who may not be part of the uh, college culture or a corporate corporate culture, DIE is a diversity, equity, and inclusion, which you would think they would want to be in inclusive, but, and diversity, but anyway, so uh, Professor Green, there was all this disruption during the, uh, the speech, so how does that, did we learn anything from that? Is there a, a takeaway? Well, it's, it's interesting. The, I mean, I think the, the statement, really, that Dean Martinez gave last week uh, was, uh, it was a really careful uh, explanation of an awful lot of things. Um, uh, what, there's one place um, where the uh, the letter, uh, so it's 10 pages long, and, and uh, about two-thirds of one of the pages were a number of paragraphs from a 1967 report by uh, the Calvin Committee at the University of Chicago. Uh, and really has, I mean, which itself is only about, about two pages uh, long, uh, but I do encourage everybody to take a look at, at, at that statement. It has been getting increased attention uh, in recent years uh, just for the, the things that it says about how universities operate, uh, what their role is. Um, so I take away, well, one of the big takeaways I get is that I'm encouraged to see uh, increased attention to, to those principles. So one of the things they, uh, they say there is, you know, uh, a university education like Socrates uh, will be upsetting. Uh, but we have to allow people to uh, be upset and be upset in the right way uh, by getting new ideas, uh, getting exposed to new ideas at uh, at a university. One thing that the Calvin Report suggests, uh, so there are a bunch of people, this is 1967, all kinds of people uh, upset about things with uh, civil rights or the war in Vietnam. Uh, a lot of people said, well, the university should take a position on these things. Uh, and one thing Dean Bartina said is uh, very rarely is the university or the law school 
uh, best positioned to make a statement collectively about controversial issues of the day. Uh, lots and lots of people in the law school uh, at the level of individual scholars, individual students, uh, have views about these things, and we want the university uh, and, and professional schools uh, to promote uh, challenging ideas. Uh, but doing it at the institutional level is unlikely to be helpful because it allows some people to say, well, if you dissent from that line that we just adopted institutionally, you're not something, uh, you're not an idea that we have to take seriously. And one thing Dean Martinez said is even though we have commitments to uh, uh, being inclusive about any uh, of our students coming to campus and learning. Uh, we also are inclusive to people who disagree about exactly what that means. Uh, so you're all, you are, in fact, allowed to disagree with uh, even the diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, ideas that the uh, school is committed to. So uh, being committed to ideas, but also being committed to um, a uh, hospitable attitude toward people who disagree with them is uh, it's all it's a it's a difficult part of the human condition. I think uh, we have this uh, uh, the same issue every uh, every time we uh, go home and have conversations at uh, Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's part of uh, you know being able to disagree without being disagreeable is uh, is an important uh, important human skill and being able to. Uh, have firmly held views without excluding people who disagree is uh, is one of the, the basic struggles of of a university. Well, that's that, it, let's talk a little bit about that because Stanford is a private university. So, let's, let's does, does the First Amendment itself apply to a private institution? Uh, short answer: No. Okay. So the uh, the First Amendment, uh, of course, uh, doesn't even restrict states. Uh, so in the First Amendment, it says Congress shall make no law uh, uh, dot 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 uh, uh, abridging the freedom of speech. And in the Fourteenth Amendment, we get a uh, an application of uh, through various Supreme Court decisions, an application of lots of parts of the Bill of Rights against the states. Uh, but the uh, the 14th Amendment says no state shall abridge any privilege or immunity of citizens of the United States. Now, uh, that's a paraphrase. But um, basically, uh, since 1925 or so, uh, states have been restricted in uh, uh, what they can do about freedom of speech. But a private entity uh, like Stanford is not subject to federal uh, constitutional uh, free speech uh, principles directly. There is a statute in California uh, that says that universities are required to respect freedom of speech uh, according to the same standards as federal constitutional standards. So there would be definitely a statutory uh, issue in under California law about respecting uh, freedom of speech. There is also, even under the 14th Amendment, uh, there are some uh, tricky questions about exactly which private entities are sometimes subject to similar sorts of restrictions that the states are. So, for instance, if you're running a railroad, uh, you're uh, what's known as a common carrier, uh, and you are respect you're re required to uh, respect uh, uh, people of all races uh, in certain ways under. Uh, or at least the, under the 14th Amendment, the state is required under a certain views of the 14th Amendment uh, to regulate uh, certain private entities. So sometimes they're called um, uh, quasi-public entities. So uh, there's a bunch of Latin terms about the, the use 
uh, privatum, the law of private entities. They use publicum, the law of public entities, uh, which aren't governmental but are still public. And then they use regium about governmental. So uh, there is at least some possible argument that uh, universities are akin to a common carrier. But uh, those are those are some even hazier areas of First Amendment law and Fourteenth Amendment law than we uh, we usually have. So, uh, so I'll stick with the short answer uh, that Stanford is not subject to the the, the First Amendment as such, but uh, could be subject to similar principles under the uh, California statutes or the Fourteenth Amendment. Well, I, so you know what makes this kind of an interesting case is you've got the speaker who has rights to speak and was invited. You've got the protesters. And let's put this in the state context. You know, you got the protesters who also each individually have a right to speak. Um, how do we, how do we sort that out? I mean, uh, if I want to organize a, a protest, let's say we, you we decide we're going to march down uh, to the square in Oxford and protest. Can, can the city of Oxford, can the state of Mississippi regulate that? Can they can they prevent us from protesting? Um uh, sure, they can certainly regulate in certain ways. So if we decide, you know, what we're going to do is march all the way, we're going to fill the square with people. We're going to fill uh, North Lamar and South Lamar and, you know, all of the side streets heading into the square so that nobody can drive anywhere. Uh, and we're going to do that for four days or something. Um, obviously, the government can uh, can say, wait a minute, you know, we're, you know, speech is great, but uh, we have to allow people to use the streets. Uh, you can't just uh, uh, have uh, uh, any speech, any time, any place, in any manner that you want. So what the courts have done um, and what legislatures have done is say, well, we're allowed to have time, place, and manner restrictions on speech as long as they're not related to content, as long as they're not uh, discriminating against one viewpoint uh, as long as they say, okay, nobody is allowed to, you know, have 3 a.m. Uh, uh, rock concerts on the square or uh, prevent uh, people from driving up and down the roads. As long as those are even-handed, uh, they're okay. So the, uh, the the trick is always distinguishing time, place, and manner restrictions from uh, content or viewpoint-based restrictions. So, uh, you know, the, the general idea that, well, you know, if you're in a classroom, uh, they, where you've been invited to speak, uh, you're allowed to speak and prevent anybody else from speaking. A kind of natural sort of um, uh, thing that you'd come up with. Uh, property rights. I, I, I have a right to speak, but I don't have a right to speak on my neighbor's lawn or prevent him from, uh, I can't uh, disrupt a meeting he's having in his in his uh, uh, his dining room talking with somebody. Um, so time, place, and manner restrictions are one thing and uh, viewpoint-based are another. Um, as applied to the Stanford situation, uh, clearly, uh, you know, anything disruptive would have been violation of the disruption policy. And that is a, a time, place and manner restriction, a perfectly sensible one. Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine not having a policy like that if you're actually going to have people uh, have a right to speech any, speak anywhere and not have some kind of a right not to have other people drown you out. We're certainly, certainly not uh, in a situation where just whoever has the, the loudest sound truck is going to win. Uh, and be allowed to speak. Uh, so it's perfectly sensible to have those kinds of uh, restrictions. Um, the, in terms of signs that were not disruptive, though, um, uh, if the, the uh, what Stanford said is, uh, you know, even vulgar signs, uh, even uh, 
you know, people holding them up during the, the, the protest, putting putting things in the hallway uh, as as Judge Duncan was walking by. Um, allowing those would not have been uh, allowing disruptive and uh, disruption. So uh, those would have been allowed. And uh, speaking like that is is a matter of free speech. Um, and again, I, I say, you know, free speech is if it's First Amendment. I'm so always always imagining, you know, what would what would it be like if, if we at, at Ole Miss did this? Uh, uh, but if you know, we we couldn't uh, as a as a governmental institution uh, take certain positions uh, in terms of viewpoint or content uh, that we could take with respect to time, place and manner. If you have a comment or a question about when you can have free speech and when and how you can protest, we'd love to add you to our conversation. Email us your questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking with Professor Chris Green about free speech and the right to protest. If you are enjoying listening to Professor Green, Great voice to listen to. I'll tell you about some of the other podcasts he's done with us next. This is In Legal Terms. Not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live, so if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. We have enjoyed having Professor Chris Green on the show a time or two, uh, and he has joined us to talk about Supreme Court justices on September 18th of 2018 and constitutional originalism on January 29th of 2019. Today, we're talking about free speech and our right to protest. Let's go to the phones. We've got Jim from Jackson. Thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Jim, what's your comment or question? Good morning. Really enjoying the conversation. Um, I have a comment about uh, the, the circuit judge at Stanford. And, you know, uh, the, the balancing act of who has a right to speak. Those um, students and the apparent faculty, could have, they could have gone outside and said what they had to say, and they've been free to do it. Um, a friend of mine once said, your right to swing your fist ends at the tip of my nose. And um, I think that's a good analysis of what happened there. Professor Green, do you have a comment about that? Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, they, you know, they weren't literally hitting him, uh, but uh, they they certainly uh, made their views known outside the classroom. Uh, and they could have uh, continued to do that. Uh, but they they didn't didn't th- think that was enough. They wanted to confront him uh, in a in a very personal way, and um, yeah, it's it you know when it when it when you when you go from speaking your own mind to physically intimidating people, uh, that's that's just a, a a big difference and disrupting it um, intellectually, uh, making people think uh, that their somebody's ideas are wrong and not worth listening to. That's one thing, but uh, saying that. Uh, we're just going to shout louder. Uh, that's that's completely different. I I agree 100. percent I also have a question. I I understand without actually knowing that there's a federal statute that makes it unlawful to protest in uh, in in a public area in front of a the home of a Supreme Court justice. And, and I don't know that that's right. It may have, that if there is such a statute, it may apply to all federal judges. I don't know. But how, how do you square that kind of statute with the First Amendment? 
Well, again, that would be, uh, I mean, the, the defense, I don't, I don't know the details of exactly how uh, a statute like that would be worded, uh, but again, it would be a time, place, and manner uh, question. So doing things that are likely to cause a, 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 a disruption of, of the use of uh, particular areas um, is, is the kind of thing you can regulate. And, uh, you know, the, when you get into the into the realm of personal physical confrontations with people, uh, as a, 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 a going to somebody's home, uh, I think that's the kind of thing where they say, "Yeah, there's a time and place and manner," and that's not the time or uh, time or place. But I would have to look at the at the details of of how that uh, how that worked out. I mean, it is certainly true that when you're talking about a federal judge, uh, when you're talking about even just having protests. Uh, the U.S. Marshals will usually uh, start thinking, uh, "Hey, let's uh, let's be careful about this." We actually at uh, at Ole Miss we had a, an event for Judge Duncan shortly after he was confirmed, uh, got on the Fifth Circuit, and there were some students. We ended up, I think, not having really any protests, um, but there's some people who are talking about it, uh, and we called down to the U.S. Marshals people, uh, the kind of the local uh, folks, and uh, they. Uh, they said, "Oh well, let's let's take a look at this perimeter and see exactly where he's walking in, and making sure that everything is, uh, you know, that we have all kinds of contingency plans." Um, I think some of the some of the U.S. Marshals have a have a much busier job than others. The people in D.C. I think are are are, are pretty busy here. I think they they thought, "Oh, we uh, we have something to do here," and they were they seemed quite energetic about uh, uh, planning for contingencies. They ended up not, uh, and again, nothing nothing really happened at the event. Um, there were some people later who who were upset about about uh, Judge Duncan uh, speaking to a class, but uh, there were uh, you know no we didn't didn't have to worry about about the contingencies. But when you talk about homes, uh, that's certainly um, you know it's just there's a tight perimeter. Uh, people are trying to get their kids uh, uh, you know the kids have a you know right to you know have their own own private lives and not not be. Uh, uh, assaulted by the press, uh, you, know, you might think. Uh, so there's just a, a lot of considerations, I think, that, that go into a, a, a rule about about justices' homes. Uh, that you know, you know, there's a, there's a time and place, but but that's uh, arguably not it. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. We're glad that you've cl- called in today. Well, thank you. I there are uh, public officials that I vehemently, strongly, and unbelievably disagree with. But when protests start to turn personal with uh, threats about them or their family, uh, that that saddens me quite quite a lot. Especially when these individuals have uh, stepped up to serve the public for uh, the good of all of us, and then there are those that want to take it to an extreme. That, that that saddens me. We've got a couple more calls. Let's go to Chico in Oxford. Chico, we're glad you've called in to In Legal Terms today. Our guest is Professor Chris Green. We're talking about free speech and our rights to protest. What have you got? A politician, I think from North Mississippi, in the last couple of years, introduced a bill down in Jackson that would make it illegal for protesters to impede business by protesting, marching in the street, like uh, like impeding a Domino's delivery dude from making his delivery, or a FedEx dude from making his delivery, etc. You know, impeding business by protesting. So, of course, the question came up: What if they're celebrating? What if the local team won a big game, and the people want to march through the streets, and they say, "Well." Yes, we're impeding business, 
but we're not protesting. We're celebrating. And when you say that's still impeding business, they say it's free speech. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, Professor Green, what's the difference between celebrating and protesting? Is there a difference legally? Well, that's exactly the kind of challenge that would get made uh, if you were uh, saying, hey, you've got these uh, purportedly time, place and manner restrictions, but they're actually being applied or actually intended in some play in, in a way that discriminates based on viewpoint. Uh, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to have one rules for one one set of rules for people who have have one viewpoint and uh, a different set of rules for somebody else. Uh, there was a 1949 case uh, that. Uh, um, Terminello, I think, is the is the, is the name of it. Uh, that it was a it was a rule about uh, about protests, but it it uh, it covered uh, a, a, a lot of additional ground, and it did it in a way that was uh, not content neutral, not viewpoint neutral. So um, uh, if if you make an exception just for one kind of uh, event. Um, it's it's hard. You you need to think. Always need to think. If, if as you're a governmental official, uh, what would I do for people in similarly uh, uh, situated circumstances who were who disagreed? So you could say, okay, you've got to have a permit. And then when we when we win the uh, win the uh, uh, you know the athletic competition, then we get a permit. And you might have a, a process for you know for getting a permit that might be difficult to to achieve. And you know. To, might have to do with how likely people are to be uh, unruly and, and, and whatnot. But uh, in order to just purely do it as a time, place, and manner, that's the, the sort of thing you need to worry about. Chico, we're glad that you've called in and are a faithful MPB listener. We appreciate your uh, questions and insights to our shows. I appreciate y'all. Thank you. Thanks. We take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're learning about free speech and the right to protest with our guest, Professor Chris Green. Uh, Next, we're going to tell you about a website you should probably go visit before you attend your next protest. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. Hey, if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on the MPB Public Radio app and also on the Think Radio YouTube channel. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, don't forget you can listen to Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. So if you want to be prepared before you go to your next protest, consider listening to our podcast on protests with ACLU Mississippi. They also have a website called Protesters' Rights. I'll have a link on our information page for that podcast from June 9th of 2020. We're talking with Professor Chris Green about free speech and the right to protest. We've got a couple of calls to get to. Let's go to Chavez in Quitman. Thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? Uh, yes, good morning. Thank you for, call, for taking my call. Uh, I was, um, uh, I, I've been looking at the news lately, and it seems that uh, tolerance uh, kind of goes hand in hand with free speech because depending on your point of view, you know, people may protest what you have to say. That's whether you're coming from the left side or the right side. But uh, what happens is that language is, is kind of being hijacked and and being used as a vehicle to to 
take away our free speech. Now it's becoming against the law to say anything anti-Semitic. It's becoming against the law to use the N-word. It's becoming against the law to use um, anything that, any language that people don't like. So, so when we, when we are that intolerant, is that a sign that we are losing our right to free speech and we're becoming, and we're becoming a nation of, of just laws that we're going to be, that we're going to be ruled just by, by laws and these kind of things? Is, is that a danger that we as a nation is faced with? What do you think, Professor think Green? Oh, sure. Um, well, it's it's hard to say exactly, you know, what what different things portend uh, in terms of how the society thinks about things. I think the most most disturbing thing is that people uh, are not taking the time to think carefully through um, through things. Our attention span um, in general has gotten shorter Uh so it, uh, it's partly through the uh, invention of things like Twitter and uh, all the reels and stuff on, uh, on TikTok and associated uh, uh, media. We only have time. We only have like one neuron free to to react. So uh, some people, I think they invest certain words with uh, more importance than they really have. They're not uh, take you know, if somebody, uh, you know, uses racial epithets, uh, it's usually a sign that they don't really have uh, anything uh, particularly worthwhile to say as an idea. Um, it's uh, it, you know it's you know it's horrific that that uh, uh, epithets get used, but uh, saying oh the, the answer is to uh, you know invest a huge amount of energy against anybody uh, using the epithets, uh, spending your energy on ideas is a lot uh, a lot better and. Uh, I don't know if uh, I don't know if society is is uh, uh, on uh, on the verge. Of, I don't think we're on the verge of collapse. Are we on trend lines that that could uh, could put us in a bad way? Uh, probably some trend lines. Uh, there's other trend lines that are uh, are more encouraging. But uh, but I think you know we just you know we want to make the next generation uh, a little more civil, a little more uh, able to to think about things than than this one uh, if we can. And that's um, that's something everybody's got to got to deal with themselves. I think. Thank you, Chavez, for calling and uh, asking that question. So, Professor Green, to what extent can governmental organizations uh, regulate your free speech? Well, that's that's kind of the big the big question. The um, um, yeah, I mean, there's yeah, as we said, we can always have time, place, and manner. I mean, the key thing. uh, I, I one of my scholarly areas is the Fourteenth Amendment, and uh, one of the big, big principles there is that citizens of every persuasion, religious or political, have the same civil rights. That's a, a phrase that gets used uh, quite a lot, uh, uh, really across the political spectrum in uh, during during Reconstruction. So the the big, I think, the big idea. Uh, behind uh, both the Fourteenth Amendment and the the First Amendment is that everybody uh, of all uh, creeds gets to have the same civil rights. So if if the government is being even-handed uh, with respect to everybody, uh, people of all creeds, it's generally going to be uh, doing okay. Uh, there's a whole lot of details that have to get get worked out uh, uh, beside that, but uh, but that's the that's the big idea. Sometimes that's going to mean you know regulating what you say. Sometimes it's going to um, uh, have impacts on what you can say, uh, but as long as they're not making the basis of people's civil rights be uh, that only one creed gets gets to have them, uh, it's it, uh, we're going to be uh, uh, basically abiding by the that central part of the American tradition. 
And I guess, does each mm, municipality have their own uh, rules, or is there an overall rule for when a protest steps into over the line and then you need a permit for it? Yeah, generally, uh, you know, a lot of different municipalities are going to have different circumstances, different, you know, street patterns. So we've, you know, just there's some cities that are obviously a lot more congested and they have to worry about things that other other people don't worry about. You know, in certain, you know, a small town, if they start saying, oh, we got to turn down your permit because of street congestion, when you're thinking, well, well, you know, I don't know, there's never been any kind of street congestion here before, you might be more skeptical about that town. Uh, whereas in, uh, you know, someplace like DC or Chicago or, uh, uh, a big city, uh, you're, you are going to, you know, think, no, 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 we really can't, we can't just have protests, uh, uh, going on in the streets all the time. Um, there are a number of areas where, uh, first amendment doctrine gives deference to local customs. Uh, some of the, uh, rules on obscenity, uh, they talk about the local, uh, local standards of what counts, uh, uh, as, as decency, um, uh, general, generally, of course, municipalities are agents of the state, so they're going to be subject to the 14th Amendment and then whatever principles of the First Amendment get incorporated. Uh, but there's going to be uh, a lot of uh, a lot of area for uh, local circumstances to be relevant to the application of a general standard. Uh, so time, place and manner being OK, viewpoint based being not OK. What that looks like on the ground is going to depend on whether you're in Oxford or Jackson or Memphis. And that and that makes sense anyway. I know that, for example, we have the double decker road race coming up in, in in Oxford. I mean, they had to get a per they have to get permits because they have to hire police to block the roads. And I mean, so that there's certain things, whether it's a protest or an event, that you you need to plan for ahead of time if it's big enough to disrupt. So, I, I think there's that it's that balancing act again, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'm planning to finally get get back in the double decker for the the 5K. Uh, last weekend when we were in DC, we uh, there were, it was actually a huge marathon going on, and my goodness, uh, that really changes things uh, in DC when they have a marathon. We we uh, my my our cab we kept turning around and and like oh my goodness, there's a you know police car down that road too. Uh, how on earth are we going to get uh, get over to to the northeast? Uh, we eventually got it, but it was it, it was a delay. There's no question that's a cost. And uh, yeah, during double decker, by goodness, I mean they set up the the actual festival. Of course, is all over the square. You gotta gotta have a permit for that. Uh, yeah, if we only allowed arts fairs and didn't allow uh, 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 political protest at all, uh, there would be an argument that that was uh, that was a, a viewpoint based uh, impermissible distinction. Um, well, Kristen, and I know we don't have a lot of time, Liz. But I got to ask this question though, because social media. You mentioned Twitter, and I, and I think that has been. Both a good thing and a bad thing. I, I, I saw a public official, uh, elected public official, called uh, pretty much 40 percent of the population of Mississippi lunatics last night. And I don't know that that normally would be how he would speak to people, but Twitter gave him that option. Um, it's kind of that saddened me, too, because that means that, you know, we, we've now reduced people to labels in Twitter. And I wish we weren't doing that. But can, can my employer put restrictions on my use of social media? Especially since you and I work for a state university, can they say, hey, we can regulate what you say on social media? I, if it were related to our jobs. So um, it would be, um, of course, you know, you could have an employer that just says we want people who aren't on social media at all. Um, just an ordinary employer, uh, if they don't have any particular role as a, as a public uh, entity, uh, they could just tell people. 
yeah, we we don't want uh, we don't want you on social media. So unless that's some sort of forbidden uh, characteristic under state law, you uh, a, an ordinary private employer could do that. Of course, Ole Miss is is the state. Uh, and then, uh, you know, if they were discriminating against us based on our viewpoint, as expressed on on Twitter, that would be a problem. Could they come up with just sort of a time, place, and manner general like we don't want any of you people on Twitter? Um, that would be that would be difficult. Uh, I think um, it would. Uh, I mean, they could say we just don't want professors wasting their time uh, on Twitter uh, or getting into fights, uh, making the university look bad. Eh, start, you know, start saying make the university look bad, then you get into into viewpoint kind of questions, and it's uh, it's tricky. But if I were if I were the general counsel, I think I would not be consider seriously considering uh, that kind of response to a few uh, few untoward tweets. Well, folks, we had a couple calls we weren't able to get to. They kind of swerved. They they took our protest topic to um, different kinds of permits or different kinds of protests, but they gave us some great ideas for follow-up shows. So thanks, Lee and Dee. And thank you, Professor Christopher Green from the University of Mississippi School of Law for joining us today to talk about free speech and protests. Thanks so much for having me. And that wraps up today's show. For In Legal Terms, our team consists of board engineer Jay White, uh, podcast producer and call screener Jermaine Flood. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you will join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.